Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 348. Ruling hard or hardly ruling? This episode is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Marsha, Elizabeth, and Chippy for signing up already. Europe was in chaos in the 1020s. The crises just kept coming, and the powerful were trying to capitalize on the disorder that followed. And in times like these, actions can have an outsized impact, even the smaller ones, the ones that most people aren't paying attention to. For example, if you were sitting in Leicester during the 1020s, the last thing you would have been paying attention to would have been the spat between the Dukes and Northern France. And even further below your list of interests would have been the fact that one of those Dukes had taken a mistress and had a bastard baby boy. Similarly, the fact that Godwin had become the king's second-in-command and was taking charge of the throne during Canute's increasingly frequent absences would have seemed like just a bit of trivia for the hardcore politicos, basically just interesting for a certain type of person, and it's unlikely that anyone would have seen it as a pivotal development that would shape European politics for generations to come. And the difference between those who watched these events in 1020 and those of us who are listening to them now is that only we know what happens next. We know that we're witnessing the rise of two powerful dynasties that, in a matter of years, would launch into a life-or-death struggle over who would rule the increasingly influential Kingdom of England. But back in the mid-1020s, these were just minor regional details. We're basically talking about someone's job prospects and someone else's love life. And things like that are only vaguely interesting feasting conversation topics if you happen to know the people who are involved. And most people in England wouldn't have, not even among the powerful. So chances are, a lot of this went largely unnoticed. I mean, maybe at some point a noble leaned over a cup of mead and said, oh, hey, did you hear that Winnie is going to be leading the kingdom again? Good for him. But that's probably the extent of it. And instead, the stories that were likely the subject of the feasting halls and the evenings around the hearth fires for the European nobility in the 1020s was the elevation of Emperor Conrad II and also the rise of the fledgling Scandinavian Empire being founded by King Canute. And Canute is particularly important for our story for obvious reasons. But what I want you to consider is the vast political mosh pit that was happening in the 1020s and how no one at the time could predict exactly what that chaos would give rise to. The only thing that was guaranteed was that as a result of it, things wouldn't ever be the same. And for Canute, everything already had changed. He entered Rome as a major figure in European politics. He was just one of two kings who stood beside Emperor Conrad as he was crowned by the Pope. And based upon his own letter, Canute was treated as a trusted ally by the new emperor, and everyone else saw him as a key player in European politics. Canute was a rising imperial power. And he knew it. Because while Canute had been preparing for this coronation, and while he'd been traveling to attend it, and while he'd been in Rome partying with Conrad and the Pope, Canute was also hard at work expanding his already substantial power base. And that's likely why he left England under the command of Earl Godwin, because he had bigger plans than just England and Denmark. 
If he was going to be an imperial power, he needed to expand his influence, his wealth, and his territory. And granted, his options were limited. I mean, he couldn't go and take his nearby neighbor of Germany, since that would have put him at war with his friend Emperor Conrad II, not to mention the entire Holy Roman Empire. But he did have other neighbors. As I've mentioned repeatedly, there are shadowy references to a war with Scotland that was likely taking place during this period. And there's also hints of conflicts with Wales. So he might have been working on those neighbors, but the real target that he had in mind during this period was farther north. Norway. You see, Norway had got his attention when King Olaf had deposed Knut's friend, Haakon. And it was King Olaf who had tried to conquer Denmark and, in the process, brought war upon Knut's own son. And let us not forget, it was also King Olaf who had thrown a f***ing river at Knut. Which, you had to hand it to him, was a bold move and it nearly worked. Nearly. But it didn't. King Olaf had been working hard to get Knut's attention. And now he had it. And you might remember that when Knut wrote to the English... He told them that he intended to, quote, arrange peace and a firm treaty with the council of all the Danes, with those races and peoples who would have deprived us of life and rule if they could, end quote. He was almost certainly talking about Olaf and the Norse here. And when he said firm treaty, what he meant was regime change. Olaf's time was up. He just didn't know it yet. So while Canute was partying with the Pope, he was also amassing intelligence. He wanted to know what the political landscape of Norway looked like, especially following the absolute disaster that was the 1025-1026 invasion of Denmark. And Knut already had a few key pieces of information regarding Norway. For example, when Olaf seized the throne, he took it from Haakon, son of Eric Lathier. And given the popularity of Eric Lathier, that move had earned Olaf a fair number of enemies. And it was a feeling that was further reinforced when Olaf went on to forcefully subjugate the Jarls of Hlathir. So Knut already had a built-in constituency who would have preferred Haakon over Olaf. Which is likely why Knut had been careful to make an ally out of Haakon. In fact, Knut had made Haakon a very visible member of his Grand Fleet when he fought against the forces of Norway in 1025 and 1026. So that suggests that he'd had this on his mind for a while. But that being said, the nobles who backed Haakon were a minority in Norway. Knut would need more than just the earldom of Hlathir if he wanted to take the entire kingdom of Norway. Luckily, Knut's informants told him that it wasn't just the Jarls of Hlathir who were sick of King Olaf. Large portions of Norway had had it with this guy. For one, Olaf was promoting Christianity in the kingdom. And while he wasn't the first one to do that... It wasn't doing him any favors. But the real issue was that the guy was a loser. He'd lost the fleet, not to mention large numbers of the young men who'd signed up for his invasion. And he hadn't even brought back any treasure. And for the Norse, that was just the last goddamn straw. So according to Florence of Worcester, Canute began to send emissaries to these discontent nobles. And they carried a simple message. Don't you think it would be better if Hawken was on the throne? Also, on an unrelated note, here's a bunch of gold and silver that Knut thought you might like. And as any DC lobbyist can tell you, people like money. 
And when you give people money, they tend to feel like they owe you one. Knut was employing the strongest force of political physics, bribery. And he soon discovered that there were a lot of people in leadership positions who were for sale, often at bargain basement prices. And this was so bad that some scaldic sources suggest that as the money began rolling in, even Olaf's own advisors began to quietly switch sides. And all of this was happening in the background while Knut was high-fiving Emperor Conrad for his new title. And that wasn't the only thing he was working on. According to Goskelin, he was also taking out insurance. You see, Knut had been doing a lot of sailing lately. And that makes sense. This was long before Zoom, and if he wanted a meeting with Conrad, or Hartha Knut, or any of his other subordinates, he'd have to actually put on some pants and travel. And medieval travel tended to be dangerous, especially the long journey to Rome, which had been worrying him. So Canute checked in with the holy men of Canterbury, and after a bit of negotiation, they struck a deal. If the monks would have a word with the big guy upstairs and make sure that the king got back to England safely, he'd owe them one. And it turns out that Canute had some real foresight here, because Goskelin tells us that on the long journey back from Rome, Canute nearly died in a shipwreck. And in this moment, we learn that Canute was a glass-half-full kind of guy because he focused on the nearly part. He didn't die. And eventually, he did make it back to England safely, and Canute attributed his safe landing to an intervention from beyond the grave by none other than St. Augustine himself. And actually, in another letter, we learn that when Canute returned to England, he rushed to Canterbury to offer them gifts, which is consistent with Goskelin's tale. And that means that if Goskelin is telling the truth here, Canute was now in the debt of Canterbury. And stick a pin in that, because we're going to be returning to it later. But shipwrecks and ghostly coast guards aside, Canute was finally back in England. So naturally, he immediately gathered a fleet of 50 ships, filled them with a bunch of English thanes, turned to Godwin and said, you got this bro, I'll be back in a bit, and immediately set sail for Scandinavia. He was headed to Norway and to war. And that meant that England once again had an absentee king, and Godwin once again had access to an empty throne, a throne that he was probably getting pretty familiar with. Up north, the Scandinavian sources tell us that Canute's first fleet gathered at Limfjord, which was the same place he gathered during the campaign of 1025 and 1026. And once everyone arrived, and they were properly provisioned, they sailed westward along the Norse coast. Skaldic poetry describes Skanut's ship as a gilded fortress, and these poems also describe Hawkins' ship as similarly bedazzled. So the two men, sailing along the coast with dozens upon dozens of supporting ships bristling with noble warriors, would have been hard to miss, and also hard to forget. And considering that they were sailing close to the coast, a lot of people would have seen them. Say what you want about Canute, this guy knew how to make an entrance. And that visible show of force, combined with the countless bribes that he'd been sending to the Norse nobility, meant that Canute's conquest wasn't going to get down to the actual sword point. This was a conquest of politics and optics, rather than a conquest of armies and navies. And sure enough, there's no record of a fight. Not one. 
there doesn't appear to have been any resistance against Canute or Hawken. Instead, as Canute and Hawken traveled through Norway with their forces, they were greeted not as invaders, but as a welcome restoration of the old order. Elsewhere, King Olaf huddled with those closest to him, and he knew he was unable to stop what was advancing upon him, and were told that what few supporters remained loyal to him quickly abandoned the doomed king and embraced the reality that was storming towards them. King Olaf was defeated without a single fight. And then he suffered the same fate that he had imposed upon Hakon Eriksson years earlier. He was driven from the kingdom and into exile. Hakon was then placed upon the throne of Norway as king, serving beneath Knut, of course. And with that restoration, exiled Norse nobles began to return to the kingdom. Scandinavia had been given an object lesson about what happens when you come at Knut and miss. Instead of breaking Knut and Denmark, Olaf's failure had made the rising imperial lord even more powerful. And as for Knut, he'd accomplished what he had intended. A firm treaty had been established with those people who had sought to deprive him of life and rule. Norway would now serve beneath him. But Norway wasn't the only kingdom that had tried and failed to conquer Denmark. I mean, when a river was thrown at Knut's fancy boat, Norway wasn't standing alone. Sweden was fighting right alongside them. And the fact of the matter was that Knut and his English fleet were all dressed up with nowhere to go. So you might be expecting that Knut would immediately head to Sweden for a rather muscular visit. But you would be wrong. We aren't entirely sure why, but Knut never sailed for Sweden. And it's possible that that's because he didn't have to. There are some signs that indicate that Sweden, at least the portions of it that were under the command of King Anand, might have already submitted to Knut's overlordship. For example, we see the adoption of the word Thane, which is sometimes misspelled as Drang, on runestones in Swedish territory that were bordering Norway. And that could indicate that that region had started to come under Knut's umbrella. And they might have even taken on some English figures in their society. Similarly, we see some coins that are popping up in the 1020s in Sweden that have the inscription Knut Rex SV. And the SV very well might have been indicating Sweden. So, Knut, King of the Swedes. However, I should be careful to note that this doesn't mean that all of Sweden was on board. Sweden appears to have been in the process of centralizing, but that wasn't a process that was complete. During this era, Sweden was less of a formal kingdom and more of a confederacy of sub-kingdoms with one king acting as an overking. So even though we see thanes appearing in runestones, that doesn't mean that Sweden was suddenly united under Canute. Similarly, those coins appear to have all come from the same mint, the same dye in fact, and they're the only coins with that particular inscription. And these coins were struck at the same time that Canute was importing moneyers from England. So while it is possible that they reflect a political change in Scandinavia, it's also possible that this was simply an English moneyer duplicating the styles of regional coins, and he didn't realize what he was implying. And we've seen this before. Most of you will remember the backwards Islamic inscription on Office famous coin. So that might be what's happening with Canute's Swedish coins. Or the coins could just be a reflection of Canute's ambitions rather than his actual political position in Scandinavia. It's hard to say for sure, 
But it seems that whatever the circumstance, Knut was comfortable enough that he didn't advance on Sweden. And there's a good chance that even if King Anund hadn't formally submitted to Knut, the fact was that Sweden was so decentralized that it was unlikely to pose a threat to him. Especially now that Knut's son Hartha Knut was sitting on the throne of Denmark and Knut's nephew, Haakon Eriksson, was sitting on the throne of Norway. Though, to be fair, it does seem that Knut felt he had some sway over at least part of Sweden because he signed off his letter to the English as King of all of England, Denmark, Norway, and part of the Swedes. Which is one hell of a sign-off, and he gives you a sense of the scope of what he'd accomplished. It had taken 15 years of war, intrigue, and diplomacy, but at last, in 1028, Canute appears to have achieved the level of political and military control that his father, Swain Forkbeard, had enjoyed for that hot minute in the last moments of his life. King Canute was now at the zenith of his power, and it was likely right at about this point that his daughter, Gunhild, was married to the son and heir of Emperor Conrad II of the Holy Roman Empire. His name was Henry. And Adam of Bremen notes that this marriage was actually Conrad's idea. We're also told that he gave Canute lands at Schleswig and other lands south of Hedeby as a token of the emperor's good faith, which again should give you an idea of the scope of power that Canute was exercising now. So as Canute sailed back to England in 1029, he was returning as a conquering hero, as an emperor in all but name. Lately, everything had been coming up Canute. And then, later that year or early in 1030, the newly restored King Haakon of Norway, one of the linchpins of Canute's growing power in the Northwest, went on a voyage out to sea. And he drowned. I guess he should have made a deal with Archbishop Athelnoth of Canterbury like Canute had done when he went to Rome. And that oversight created a huge problem for Canute because it meant that the throne of Norway was left open. And as such, Canute's ass was suddenly flapping in the wind. And it couldn't have come at a worse time because he was already up to his neck with problems in England. Do you remember how there are hints in the record about a conflict with England and Wales during this period? Well, those hints are now turning into direct accounts. The Annals of Tigernach tell us that the English joined up with the Scandinavians from across the Irish Sea and plundered Wales in 1030. Now, the Scandinavians from across the Irish Sea were almost certainly the Dubliners, or the forces from the Isle of Man. And interestingly, when we look at Canute's charters, we see Citric Dukes appear three times. And we know that King Citric Silkbeard was ruling over Dublin during this period. Furthermore, some other records suggest that Dublin's first bishop was consecrated by none other than Canute's hand-selected archbishop, Archbishop Athelnoth of Canterbury. Which again, points to a close relationship between England and Dublin. And they might have been close this entire time. And if true... This might mean that in addition to exercising overlordship over vast portions of Scandinavia, Canute was also bringing Dublin, and perhaps even the Isle of Man, under his umbrella. And when it comes to raiding cultures, few things are as bonding as a joint campaign to plunder and pillage. And the fact is, it's entirely possible that there was a Welsh campaign. I mean, Canute had the resources to be able to launch multiple fleets. And we also know that Canute had the ambition Moreover, it wouldn't have taken much to persuade the English to go fight the Welsh. 
And finally, there's a 12th century document that appears to show the King of Gwent confirming Bishop Joseph of Flandoth with the support of, wait for it, Archbishop Athelnoth of Canterbury and King Canute. Now, this document is controversial and it isn't universally accepted, but it is in line with a lot of other signs that we're seeing from during this period that Canute might have been trying to exercise control over his western borders. But it certainly appears that something was going on between England and Wales during this period. And that something was looking distinctly imperial. And Wales and Dublin weren't the only things that were demanding Canute's attention in 1030. Do you remember how, according to Goscelin, Canute owed Canterbury because St. Augustine saved him from drowning during that shipwreck? Well, they were ready to call on that favor. You see, it turns out that Canterbury was having problems with the religious community in Thanet because Thanet had something that Canterbury wanted. They had the bones of St. Mildred. And the bones of a saint were important for two reasons. First of all, relics like these were, for the medieval world, magical objects. They did things for you, not just your soul, but they could also possibly heal you, or make your crops grow, or your wool sell. They might even get you pregnant. And because of that, relics had a value entirely on their own. But beyond the magic aspect, they are also huge moneymakers for the religious communities that house them. Because believers would pay a lot to have access to those sweet saintly bones. So basically, Thanet, which had become an increasingly minor institution and had even been downgraded in recent years, still housed a major moneymaker that, as far as Canterbury was concerned, belonged in a larger and more prestigious location. Namely, their location. But when Canterbury asked nicely, Thanet refused. So the monks of Canterbury got creative. And they reached out to Canute and basically said, Hey, remember when we broke into London together and stole that saintly corpse? That was great. Well, funny story. We'd like you to do it again. And before you say no, don't forget that it was our prayers that kept you from drowning on the way back from Rome. And while Canute was kind of busy at the time, a promise was a promise. And besides, he was already coming up with a plan. First, he summoned Abbot Elfstan of St. Augustine's to Thanet. And Elfstan was quick to act, because even though Canute called upon him on the weekend, on a Saturday no less, by the next day, Whit Sunday, he was already in Thanet. Now, no one knew why Abbot Elfstan was in Thanet. They also didn't know why King Canute chose to visit Thanet on Whitsunday. Or at least, they didn't know the real purpose. So, while everyone probably just assumed the king and the abbot were being particularly devout that year, Canute took the abbot aside, and he filled him in on the plan. Though there was a twist with the plan this time. The king was going to have to sit it out. The guy had priors. Just about everyone in London had seen him robbing that last saint's corpse, so I'm guessing he didn't want to press his luck again. And instead, Abbot Elfstan would have to handle this on his own. But luckily, the abbot was ready for that, because he brought his squad with him. A group of monks and soldiers who, apparently, were totally down with grave robbing, not to mention violating at least one commandment. And so, on May 17th of 1030, as the observances of Whitsunday went on, Abbot Elfstan and the gang hung around, acting casual, they went to the feast and ate and drank and socialized. And then, probably one by one, 
they begged off to go to bed. I mean, they were just monks, and all that feasting had made them tired, you see. And once they were away from the party, they snuck over to Minster and Thanet and broke in. And now, there was just the small matter of opening the tomb. But when they tried to open it, St. Mildred stopped them from beyond the grave. So they tried again. And again, St. Mildred performed a miracle, keeping her tomb sealed shut. And they tried again. And again, St. Mildred, who is apparently at least a level 3 wizard, cast Arcane Lock, and the Holy Robbers were left out in the cold. Most of the night was spent like this. And Goskelin interprets this as a sign of Mildred's incredible post-mortem powers. And I interpret it as what happens when you ask a bunch of monks to pull off a high-level B&E. But, given enough time, eventually any door can be opened. And it took a lot of work, but Elfstan's party finally got the crit they needed. And they pried the door open and plundered the tomb. But they weren't out of danger yet. Their struggle with the tomb door had taken the entire night. So the sun was coming up. And as such, the people of Thanet were waking and at least a few of them realized what was happening and woke others. Abbot Elfstan led his men to the getaway ships as fast as he could, with an enraged public charging after them, and they only narrowly made their escape. Goskelin tells us that Mildred's relics were then translated to Canterbury on the following morning, May 18th of 1030, and they were received with much fanfare which Mildred appears to have been fine with because she refused to use any of her wizard powers to get up and leave. And with that weird bit of business handled, Canute was finally now free to focus on his Norse problem. Norway needed someone to sit on the throne, and Canute did have someone in mind. But there was a problem. He hadn't moved quickly enough. And as such, Olaf, the former king of Norway, had time to make preparations to regain the throne. And while many had abandoned Olaf during Canute's campaign a year or two earlier, that didn't mean that Olaf was without friends. He had supporters in Norway. He also had supporters in Sweden. And we're told that it was from Sweden, where he was presumably living in exile, that he began his march east, supported by several thousand warriors. And word of this advance spread quickly. And soon Olaf's half-brother, Harald, heard of the coming army. Now, Harold was something of a black sheep in his family. He had two older, full-blooded brothers, but they were more down-to-earth and focused on farming and local matters. But not Harold. Harold idolized his half-brother, Olaf. And with a role model like that, he began to dream some pretty big dreams. So when Olaf returned to seize the throne, Harold, even though he was only about 15 years old, rushed to gather supporters from the uplands. And it turns out that he was pretty good at it, because by the time that Olaf and his men arrived in eastern Norway, Harald had gathered 600 men to welcome the would-be king. Snorri claims that Olaf had an army numbering 3,600 people, though to be fair, he was writing 200 years after the event, so who knows how accurate that accounting is. But if true, it was a sizable force. The trouble, though, was that while Olaf's companions, his half-brother, and whatever supporters came out of Sweden were excited about this return to the throne, the common folk of Norway weren't. 
We're told that upon hearing about Olaf's advance, a great peasant army was raised, numbering somewhere between 10,000 and 14,400 men. And at Stiklestad, the two armies met. And while Snorri tells us that the peasant army was largely farmers, it's clear that numbers were going to win the day anyway. And he tells us that in the fighting, Olaf took a wound to the knee, and then to the neck. And then finally, a spear found a path through his mail shirt and impaled him through the belly. Olaf and his dream of rule died there, beside a large stone at Stiklestad. Upon seeing the fallen king, his army soon broke and fled the field. And retreating with them was the 15-year-old Harold. He was also badly wounded. And due to his role in this failed invasion, he would now have to live in exile. His dream of returning the Norse crown to the fair-haired dynasty, of placing his older brother on the throne, had failed utterly. And now he was a man without a country and he was fleeing to the lands held by the Kievan Rus in hopes that they would grant him hospitality. But while the campaign had been a complete loss, and they'd failed to free Norway from the control of King Canute, Harold had learned something important. Despite his young age, he demonstrated that he had a precocious talent for military command. And in time, history would remember him as Harold the Hard Ruler, or Harold Hadrada. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to sign up for membership or join any of our communities, you can find links to pretty much everything at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.